Hey everybody, it's Jim Mallard here. Welcome to the Mallard Report. The Mallard Report is recorded in front of a live virtual audience on the Duck Pond. Tuesday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern, live. Mallard.com, M-A-L-L-I-A-R-D.com. One more thing before we start. Let me turn it over to my friend that you may know from Ancient Aliens and the Curse of Oak Island and many other things, Robert Clotworthy. On the Malliard Report, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed on the show are solely those of the hosts and guests, and not necessarily of Evergreen Podcasts, KillerPodcast.com, sponsor or affiliate, or any other individual or group. On the Malliard Report, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in the show are solely those of the hosts and guests, and not necessarily of Evergreen Podcasts, KillerPodcast.com, sponsor or affiliate, or any other individual or group. Good evening, everybody. I hope everybody is well. Getting spring here in western Pennsylvania, so I don't know. If, I know I'm enjoying it, but I, I'm glad for the allergy medicine too at the same time. But anyways, my guest tonight is Gloria Haas. Gloria, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty good. As I was say we just shared a couple good laughs here before the uh, before the show started, so we're off and rolling pretty good. Uh, so give me the thumbnail sketch of who you are before we dig backwards and forwards for who you are, actually are. Well, that's a good question. I'm an author. I'm recovering from a head injury I received two years ago. And at least uh, I was reading on Facebook a memory from two years ago, a month out after having uh, my um, head trauma. It was just like I was so miserable. And I never believed that I would get to the point of where I am now and back to writing books and using my visionary gifts on a higher scale than I have before. And I have a four-legged fur baby and live in Arizona. And our springtime was a high of 71 today and a low of 40 degrees this morning. So while you're happy for spring, I'm not because it means 90-degree weather's at 8 o'clock in the morning or 5 in the morning, coming up soon. Yeah, I was going to say, you're getting ready to melt. No. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> Literally, so I, we have the different <laughs> types of melts around here. I'm My snow is melted, and you're just getting ready to melt into a puddle. No. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then my dog looks at me, and she's wilting. And you're like, well, hurry up. Let's get inside. <laughs> Well, it's that, I, I, this is the other great thing I hear about the West, but it's a dry heat. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, you know, I'm thinking, well, my oven's probably a dry heat, too. It doesn't mean I want to climb in there. Exactly. And where I live, because it's considered a subtropical climate because you have a lot of palm trees and vegetation, we have humidity, and it gets up to sometimes 69% humidity in the summertime and no rain. So you don't have that dry heat? No, we don't. Well, that's no fun. You have, you have all the heat and none of the benefit out west. Yeah, it's, it's like we hibernate. Okay, where you hibernate in the winter, I hibernate in the summer. I, I go say. out early in the morning, late at night, and and have a siesta the rest of the day. I know when it gets to about 80 80, 85 degrees, I'm ready to pack it in, so I can't imagine 100. I just can't. But, nope. <laughs> but anyways. Yeah, 120 where I used to live in Bullhead City. I don't live there anymore. <laughs> I can't. I just can't imagine why. Nope. <laughs> you feel like you're in hell. What do you mean? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure which is worse. Maybe we should put that out there to my listeners. Which is worse, the four feet of snow or 100 degrees? both <laughs> i was gonna say 100 degrees you don't have to shovel but man you feel like you need to shower all the time exactly so okay that's this this segment was brought to you by the weather channel the fine folks over there actually i'd like to talk to jim cantori but that's a whole nother can of worms for another day i don't know why don't you know why i mentioned that because i know he's not listening right now maybe somebody that knows him is but anyways back to reality uh <laughs> So you're a writer. What, what, okay, let's start with the writing aspect of all this. So what made you want to write back in the – I don't want to say back in the day, but I don't know how else to say it. It's been a while. You've been a writer for a while. Yeah, about 20-some-odd years. About a little over 20 years, yes. 
or po- pulling on, I guess, pushing on 30. Gosh, years. Golly. We'll, we'll, st- we'll stick with 20 just to make us feel better. Yeah, let's go with 20. <laughs> I feel better that way. <laughs> um, what had happened was, um, I was, I was disabled due to fibromyalgia and my legs had collapsed on me and couldn't go to the senior center unless you're a volunteer because at age 35, they sort of don't want you in the senior center as, because you're not a senior. So I had gone to my doctor for a regular checkup and he was um, asking me about how I was feeling and everything. And then I had to describe this personal you know, issue that was going on with my insides and my bowels. And here my doctor is a man and I'm not feeling comfortable discussing this with a man. So I came up with these really colorful, long, big words that just came (laughs) out of my mouth. And he said, Gloria, you have a way with words. Why don't you write a book? Because I was telling him how bored I was. So I started, I said, what do I write? He goes, what do you want to write? He said, write fiction, make up a story. And I did. I ended up writing a romance novel and titled The Last Farewell. And I wrote under my um, maiden name and Gloria Lane. And it went really good. And I thought, I'd like that. And then I started writing two more books, which were sequels. But they were like thrillers, which I tend to enjoy more. And then I've also written some nonfiction just to take a break from fiction and with cognitive um, speech therapy, my therapist suggested that I uh, do something I had never done before. And I tried, but it gave my head such an excruciating headache that I thought I would cheat and do something that I forgot that I had done. And I thought, well, I forgot I had written thrillers. And then I found out that I did because I went looking through my books. So I decided to write cold cases, which I hadn't done before, which help build new neural pathways and make me more functional. And that's the version, condensed version. <laughs> yeah, like I said, <laughs> it, it, it's it's impressive to get through all the iterations and all the differences, but I had to, we had to get something out there so people could kind of understand where you are, the path that we're going to walk down now a little bit more uh, in, in detail here. But uh, I had to start somewhere, so I figured that would be a good way to start. Um it is, and I don't mind. So, okay, let's start way back because you, you mentioned seeing things and having that experience. So that, but that goes. Now, I will say that goes way back because that goes back to when you were really uh, four, I think. Right? Was that was the first four, time you? Yeah, I was four. So go ahead, tell me a little bit. Of, I mean, I don't remember much when I was four, but this sounds like something I'd probably remember if it happened to me. I all I remember is my mom telling me that we were moving from Indiana to California. And I know that we had these big, you know, cars made out of steel, 1950s. And there were like boats and where the no seatbelt laws and the kids could stand up on that big, huge hump in the back, you know, between the right and left side and big bench seats. And I believe we were coming, we're going from Indiana to California. I don't, I, that's all that I, I don't even know if that was the trip. Both my parents had deceased, so I can't ask them. But I remember being bored. My brother was asleep in the back seat and I get up and stand between them. And my dad's talking to my mom and I remember him saying, hon, we're about to run out of gas. And I really don't know this stretch of, um, you know, the stretch of land. And you know those big hills that you are at the crest of, at the top of it, and you go down and you go up to another crest of a hill? We were on the top of the hill, and I looked, and he goes, I don't know if we're going to make it up that hill. And my mom goes, just do the best you can. So I said, Dad, he goes, what? I said, there's a gas station. at. You'll make it. There's a gas station at the top of that other hill, on your side of the street. And he goes, my side of the street? I said, well, you know, I go, he goes, you mean the my side, meaning the left? I go, yeah, that side. And he goes, how do you know there's one over there? I said, because I can see it. He goes, Gloria, you must have really good eyesight because I can't see that far. And my parents exchanged looks. 
And sure enough, we go down there and we go up. And I was telling him, turn here, dad, turn here. Well, actually, daddy. And he turned and he stopped for to fill up the gas. I get out of the car. My mom wakes up my brother. We're going to go to the restroom. And I just start walking right in the place. So my mom goes, Gloria, where are you going? So I'm going to the bathroom. She said, how do you know what's over there? I said, because I've seen it. <laughs> Talk about freaking my parents out. <laughs> You're kind of freaking me out telling me, so that's okay. I can imagine, I'm putting, I guess I'm putting myself in your dad's shoes because I, you know, have kids myself. And um, yeah, anyways. <laughs> yeah, and, so, and that's, and that's, then it, that was the only, like, the only, only time you remember that happening when you were little, little. Um, yeah, up until um, age of about eight years old, because we had moved when I was um, six, and I it may have happened when I was six, but I think it was eight, because seven, I had, age seven, I had nephritis, and I was bed bound for a year, and they didn't expect me to live, but I remember being on, you know, those old, heavy oak beds that they had, you know, the cheap beds that were made out of oak. Yeah. And, you know, an eight-year-old's not going to be able to move that bed all by themselves. And I remember waking up to laughter, and I open up my eyes, and it's dark in there, and then all of a sudden, a light is coming on in the bedroom. And I see these little green goblin-looking men and they're pinching me, and they're jeer, you know, making jeers at me. If that's the word, if I, I think it is, and I'll make it up if it isn't. <laughs> it and, is now. Okay, and they're hitting on me, and they were hurting me. And I said, "Leave me alone! You're hurting me." And then they started moving my bed out to the middle of my bed and back to the wall. And I'm in my bed. Uh, my um, I think my door was open. Because my parents would have it open, you know, they we would start off sleeping with the door closed because they had the TV and stuff on, and then they would open it going to bed. And I was screaming at the time. I remember screaming. And my mom comes in and goes, what's the matter? Flips on the light, and the little green men disappear. And I'm going, they're moving my bed. My bed was moving, and I was crying. And my mom goes, your bed's fine. It's up against the wall. And I said, mommy... And then she, I said, there's these little green men. And they kept coming back for visits. And one night, um, I was screaming. And my dad goes, Gloria's at it again. And my mom comes running down, flips on the light. And my bed was in the middle of my bedroom floor. And my mom goes, how did you get your bed here? I said, I didn't do it. The green men moved my bed. And she said, Gloria, help. Here's my mom, <laughs> you know, in her late 20s, early 30s, asking me to help her move my bed back to the wall because she couldn't do it. So how can she expect, an, you know, <laughs> a small child to be able to move it on their own? And I, and then uh, my brother, even uh, before he, he died, would laugh at me and say, remember when you used to say your bed was moving? My mom would look at me and I would look at her and she I just get up and walk out of the room. And he said, that was so funny and stupid. And I don't know if my mom ever believed me, but time she had dementia, so I don't know if she even remembered it. But it, that happened uh, with that. So but they would pinch me and they would hit me. And then I couldn't watch, um, I'm writing them, but I couldn't watch scary movies. I mean, I couldn't even watch Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein because I would have ghosts form their face of Frankenstein in my sheet and I, they would tap me, wake me up, and I would see his face rise up, my sheet rise up, and I would scream. And my mom said, no more scary movies for you. No. And she just thought I was being impressionable from scary movies, which... I could be, which I believe I am, but still. But you weren't scared of the other, which baffles me. I, I think know. I'd be terrified of whatever these green things were in my room. 
I would, and I was scared of a, a ghost would come in and, you know, they would be in my doorway and talk to me. And one time I thought it was my dad and I was talking to him. And the next morning I said, Daddy, what did you want? I don't didn't understand what you were saying last night. He goes, when last night? I said, you were standing in my doorway talking to me. And he goes, Gloria, I wasn't standing in the doorway talking to you. So then when it came time to bedtime, I want, I didn't want my light out. I didn't want it out at all. So my mom would put on the hall light and leave my bedroom door, you know, it cracked out, you know, open away so I could see the light because I was terrified of when it was, when it had gotten dark. And it took me years to get over to be able to sleep in the dark. But I, for safety's sake, I do have a nightlight on. So in the middle of the night when I get up, I don't kill myself. Because, you know, when you get older, you have to make more bathroom breaks in the middle of the night than when you were younger. <laughs> uh, sad. That's a sad fact that I'm learning now. Uh, seems like I should just move my bed in there. Um, <laughs> save the trouble. Um you you mentioned your brothers and sisters. Did they have any? Did you talk to them about what was going on? And did either of them have any thing going on, or did they look at you like you were out to lunch? I only had a brother. I didn't have any sisters. Oh, okay. I'm sorry um, about that. That's okay. No, um, when I he laughed and thought it was funny. He didn't believe me, and he would get. He would think it was funny. Oh, this is a good story. He would get to the point of he played a practical joke on me one night and he was in my closet. Well, the house that we lived in, we shared a common area, the closet space. So it was only one wall and there was our closet, you know, separating in between the rooms. So he came out of my closet wearing a sheet one night and I screamed. I was so upset. I couldn't sleep that night. I was in tears. So it took me a few minutes. I thought, okay, ghosts. Hmm. It took me about a day or two. And then I said, Mommy, can I pay Norman back, please? She goes, what do you mean? I, and I told her what I was going to do. So she said, okay. So I had practiced running from the closet to my bed. And my mom timed me and getting under the covers. And she would act like she was my brother coming from his room to my room until I could get it down <laughs> to where I could be under the covers, have the covers, you know, over me from my closet, close the door and everything before my brother even got halfway down the hallway. And <laughs> of course, as when you're small kids, we can move faster than when we're older. <laughs> then my mom told my dad what I was going to do when I was all ready. So my brother, you know, we said our good nights and my mom left the hall light on like she normally did, had my door open ways. And she said, okay, Gloria. So I got out of bed and I opened up my closet door very quietly and I got up to the wall and I go, ooh, Norman, I'm going to get you. And I got out, ran back to my bed, and I was able to get away with this for three nights. And the third night, my brother was in tears, and mom said, no more. My mom goes, it's just your sister. No, no, there are ghosts in the wall. There are ghosts in my closet. And I just started laughing. My mom goes, Gloria. So I go, Norman. He goes, it was you. I go, yes, it was me. My mom said, no more practical jokes. <laughs> so okay but when you were older did you talk about the, the, any of these phenomenons with him and did he have any change reaction I'm sorry what when, that... when he when, when you were both older did you talk to him about the paranormal of, of any variety did he ever become no, a believer but, in it um not into, now this is interesting uh, my brother was an artist. He had art less classes and stuff, but he never did anything with it. And I remember sitting there, um, this was about going on 10 years ago, and he showed me pictures of faces of aliens. And I looked at him and I said, where did you find these pictures? He said, they're just coming out of my head. 
And I said, do you think that you've been on an alien spaceship? And he looked at me and goes, do you think I'm that stupid? I said, then how can they come out of your head? I mean, they were exact of what you would see in the movies. And he didn't even go to those types of movies. But that was the extent of our conversations because he wouldn't talk about it. But he did, which is, you know, there's all <laughs> those people that don't want to talk about it, but talk about it just enough to talk about it. There's something about that. Yeah, and I said, why do you keep drawing these pictures? I mean, they're of alien spacecraft, the different people, um, aliens that you would probably see on a spacecraft. And I remember approaching him one time and I said, Norman, would you believe it if I told you I saw an alien spacecraft? And he just started laughing at me. I said, well, I guess we're not having that conversation. He goes, no, we're not. Hmm. But he was a very, very private, closed person. So I guess when I need to dive back into the, the timeline of your life, because I kind of skipped forward. I was just interested, though. Um, so when did you That's see okay. <laughs> when did you see your your first craft there, your spaceship? Or I don't know. I don't want. I don't want to say spaceship. I don't know craft spaceship. I don't know. Well, I was about ten years old, and I had gone down the street to uh, see one of my girlfriends, Terry, and I won't give a last name. Um, and we were walking down the street to my house, or actually we were going to the park, but you had to pass my house to go to the park, and which was only two doors down at the time where we lived. And I was in California, which is 15 minutes outside of Palmdale where the San Andreas Fault runs through it. And it's interesting, though, getting going back, I don't remember having any of these experiences in Indiana or in the Los Angeles area, only after we moved to Quartz Hill, having these experiences. But getting back to Terry and I walking down the street, she goes, Gloria, do you think uh, Nikki, one of Nikki's horses got out? There's a horse laying on, the, on its side. We thought there was a horse laying on its side and down the street. So we ran up to it and she's like, oh my gosh. I go, what? And she said, that's only half a horse. It had been cut. It was like somebody had severed it. It was like a clean cut like you would do with a laser from the middle of its forehead, down its ears, down its spine. That type of a half a horse with a half a tail laying on the ground. And she said, go get your mom. I'm going to go get my mom. Well, which was just my house was closer. And she went and got her mom and my mom came out we were standing there and my mom looked at terry's mom and said i think there was no horse there but there was an outline of dried blood from the horse on the ground in the shape of a horse and terry goes see mom it's gone now it's gone she goes how can it be gone that soon terry was grounded i was grounded i mean i was only like a two-minute walk i said Terry and I can't go to the park now. My mom goes, I don't think so. Now get yourself in the house. I said, can I wait a few minutes? And she said, yes, because I need time to cool off here. So I'm standing there and Terry and her mom were going down the street to her house because she lived quite a ways down. I would say six or eight houses down. And um, I went ahead and I stood there. And I looked up and I saw the saucer and I said out loud, I said, what did this horse ever do to you for, to deserve this? And I looked down back at the ground. I looked back up and the saucer was gone, but that blood remained on the ground for a week before it disappeared completely. That's, that's a trip. Like, yeah. I, I put, again, I'm putting myself in your mother's shoes. And to go out there, you know, I, I'm imagining the conversation you had to go get her out there. And then get out there and it's not there. But there's, yeah. It's just. <laughs> <laughs> so then, then you go a little while, well, a little while here with kind of just living life, right? From when you yeah. were. 10, 11 to what, 40, 
What? Twenties. Living life, right? Yep. To my twenty. Yeah, my twenties is when I could start moving objects. I must apologize, everybody, for some dead air in there. That is phenomenally weird, but here we go. That was phenomenally weird. I've never seen that happen before. I know. I moved my <laughs> hand. I should be talking with my hands. Well, see, it, it um, wasn't only you. It, my end stopped. I, I stopped being able to talk. My all, You know, I was telling you about how I, I had audio level, you know, and I couldn't hear myself earlier. I wasn't, I wasn't seeing myself talk for a few minutes, and that was just, wow, that was totally different. And then I'm like, huh. Anyway, so I think we got a little too close to something there. Somebody didn't like that. Uh, Probably. Well, yeah. then another time I had spoken, I went to the phone, it was his sister, and then after it started ringing, he said, don't you even, he said, now you wait for the phone to ring. And one time I get up, he goes, where are you going? I said, the bathroom. Is that okay? <laughs> <laughs> So that was, I shut down that part of my life um, for at least 20 years. So what made I didn't you, stay with him for 20 years. I was going to say, obviously you probably left him, I'm just going to assume. Uh, yeah. But what made you, I mean, having closed that part of your life off, what made you decide to go back into it? Um, I found out, well, um, actually... I was, gosh, now how do I put this? I'm trying to think of the words. I was working at the community college teaching adult continuing education classes and going to school part-time or full-time. I don't remember. I think part-time and stuff. And I remember that I was talking with uh, my supervisor in her office and stuff and she said, I might need to call you tonight or call me tomorrow because there had been about snow days. Are we going to be having class in the evening or not? Because this is back east in Maryland. And um, I said, okay. So I called to her office and she said, Gloria, I can't really talk right now, but we're not having class. And I said, you sound upset. I said, what's going on? Because I could feel. And she said, well, I have someone here, a friend of mine who is very upset, and she said her husband is really acting weird, I, and I said, he's cheating on her, and she, the girl, and Sandy said, what? I said, he's cheating on her. She goes, how do you know? I said, I see him. 
And I, it was just like, I could see a vision of him. And the girl goes, what did she say? And she said, Gloria, I'm going to put you on speaker. And I told the, um, the woman and she said, my husband's acting weird. We're, we're, he's not cheating on me. I would know, but he's acting really strange and working late and just saying that, and he's not at work. And I just want to think the best of him. And I said, he's cheating on you. I can see it. And I told her what hotel he was at, where he would go, and what nights he would be there. Well, we hung up. And then um, I get a call a couple of days later from my supervisor and her friend was there. And she goes, how did you know? Do you know my husband? I said, no. <laughs> what a way I to insert it. yourself right into the situation, though, from the outside looking at it. <laughs> I know. I'm like, no, I don't. I said, it, you know, and she said, well, why don't you tell me what color truck he drives? And I told her what color truck, what time he was going to be there. And I said, expect a call tonight that he won't be home. She said, well, he's been home the last three nights. I said, he won't be home tonight. He'll, you know. And then that happened. And what she did was she went by the hotel and she knocked, um, she saw where his truck was right in front of the hotel room. She knocked on the door and he answered. And the woman was in the background. So next day, um, my supervisor called me and the, her friend was really in tears. And I said, I'm sorry, you wanted to know, you know, an answer. And that's what got me started back in there because I could, you know, help people. But the husband I was married to at the time told me I couldn't do that anymore because it sort of kind of freaked him out. But oh. then. <laughs> <laughs> really? I can't see why. I can't either, Jim. Could you explain it to me? <laughs> uh, we'll have to get a politician on the line. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I'll be able to vote. Never mind. Um, <laughs> oh. But I remember, just, um, fast forward to 1996. Um, I had, of course, we're still friends. A friend of mine came and came over and we were um, sitting on the couch talking and he had had a notebook with him and he said, there's some things I want to talk with you about. And I said, what is it? And he had done a 16, he had already, no, the book took, I think, 16 years. He had was doing a family genealogy and he found out through his father, who was living at the time, um, about a great uncle because he can't, he had, his dad was helping him with it, was telling him that he was aboard the ship, the USS Cyclops, when it went down. So my friend Marvin, Marvin Barish um, said, you know, I said, I forget what the conversation was, but he took notes. And then he was talking about, I don't know if I want to turn this into a book. I said, well, why not? He said, because I don't want people, if I am right about the location of the ship, I don't want pirates coming and raping the ship of her belongings. And, you know, I convinced Marvin to write and have his book published. But then he said, I don't know if I want to do all that work only to find that I won't have a publisher. I said, trust me, you will have a publisher. And out of that will come, you'll, you know, you'll, you'll be on TV, you'll be giving many talks. And he did give many talks. He has been giving many talks and he's been um, on TV. But he finally finished The Cyclops and it was published in 2010. And he has the second book on The Cyclops, Volume 2, 2021. And... I mean, he has an IMBD, you know, profile up there. So his page, and he's been on the History Channel. Um, he was on Drain to Bermuda, as well as um, he found out that one of the things that he did was on Disney Plus. 
one of the documentaries, and he's currently talking with someone about another film documentary on the USS Cyclops. That's crazy, though, that you were in Everything. Uh... <laughs> As I say, that's crazy to think about. I mean, I, every time somebody starts talking about these things, just the number of factors that have to be spot on for something like that blows mm-hmm. my mind. Like, I'm lucky to find my car keys in the morning. <laughs> well, I have to put my keys in the same place or I won't find them. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm saying, though, right? Like, there are... Yes. I mean, there are so many mundane things that we forget or overlook or just don't take for granted. And then to be able to pinpoint something somewhere we've never been, kind of, you know what I'm saying, just blows my mind. Yes. And it, and he'll, you know, I'll get a text message from him or we talked, we spoke on the phone today and it was just like, you know, um, he just sent me a text message with a wink. Hi, Myron. He's listening. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, it took a lot of of talking to convince him to go ahead and publish the book. And I remember him calling me and saying, would you like to see all this stuff? He was just gathering the research. And I went over there and there were piles of stuff. And and he was, had it all like in the laundry room of where he lived. And it was it had his office in there, and I mean, it was like how, it, was, it was stacks. It was like, how do you know where to start? And I'm glad he knew what he had going and how it organized because there would be no way that you know I could even go through that. Well, but I, I was with. Him. I, I guess this is more of a question for him than you, but I can't imagine putting that much work into it not to put it into a book, though. You know, like I, you know, like I, I sit here and do these shows all the time. Like I understand the process and gathering all the information and doing, all, you know. But then there's the, the output of it. I couldn't imagine doing all the work for doing one of these shows and then sitting on it, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, that's why he, um, he really. It took him a while to really think about doing it before he even. And he just started gathering some facts and then. The more he got into it and spoke with um, family members of the deceased sailors from the Cyclops, um, he, you know, it just really started putting it in. And he said, "You're right <laughs> about, <laughs> um, you know, gathering all that and not writing the book." So I guess that then brings us to your brain injury, right? Am I missing anything before that? Um. Um, let me see. No, I was seeing angels and oh, I had been angels that, in my 50s. Is, is that what that, is that what the little <laughs> stick figure is on my paper? <laughs> um, I got my cheat sheet in front of me. That's uh, glad you, well, your, your cheat sheet must be better than mine because I can't read my own writing at this point because I decided to go hieroglyphics for that one instead, instead of writing. Well, I just copy and pasted it from the email I sent you. <laughs> That's how come I can read it. (laughs) Um, I remember hearing angels and I actually, I remember um, I was an on-staff evangelist for this home church. And I remember they were opening up the church and I had uh, moved from, I can't remember if it was Bullhead City or Phoenix area down to Tucson. And I would stay at the church and wasn't in a very good neighborhood. So instead of staying in my motor home after calling the pastor and saying, I'm looking out my window and I'm watching a drug deal go down. (laughs) So it was time to move Gloria and my dog that I had at the time, Missy, into the church. So I had a pallet on the altar so I would get up in the morning, go and get a shower, get dressed and come back, and there were there was a, would be a feather laying on my pillow. And that would happen every morning. And so I believed that, I mean, the pastor was all excited, and some people in the church go, yeah, you have a feather pillow. I said, no, I don't. It's all foam. I don't, I don't use a feather pillow. They, they look at me, and I said, because it falls apart too quickly and goes flat like a pancake. And 
then I remember about a couple of years later, I was um, in Minnesota at a church and I was at this really beautiful service where people would, you know, we call them singing in the spirit, dancing in the spirit, one of the charismatic churches. And all of a sudden, I it sounded like a choir was singing, and there are only three people of the five on the podium singing. I And I was looking around and got up and looked around the corner to the side because there was a little um, side room that was open to the main part of the sanctuary and there were only a few people there. I thought, where are these people coming from? So afterwards I spoke with the pastor and I told him what I heard. He goes, those are angels singing. And he hadn't heard it, but I was telling him one of the other women heard it as well. So it was very, very beautiful. I'm surprised. That he said it was angel singing and that you weren't, you know, because some, some faiths are kind of a little, how do I say this gently, disconnected from the spirituality of them, even though their spirituality, just saying, hate mail goes to glory on that comment. <laughs> She's Don't the one, give them my email address. <laughs> She's the one that said it, not me. Um. I noticed that I had experienced this in a couple of churches, but not all churches. Yeah, I know. And I, you I, know, I, I know what you're saying. <laughs> and I've had some pastors in the very strict believing churches tell me, oh, I've heard stories like this before, and I believe people are just making them up or it's something they really want to hear, so they're actually hearing it. But I think now it's a little more acceptable. I might be wrong. But I hang out with the people who say it's acceptable. So, <laughs> um, because that's my experience and their experiences. And I have felt the, you know, the Holy Spirit move. I have felt his heavy presence. And, you know, God's energy is very powerful. So, yeah, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. It's good. Okay, so traumatic brain injury, that, I mean, how do I understate this? That sounds like a life-changing event. It was, and it has been. Um, Before my head injury, I could drive cross-country. I could drive. Um, I have global brain damage. The MRI showed global brain damage. And just from hitting my chin on the sidewalk. And what it comes from is from being hit in the head repeatedly by my mother being slammed against walls and with abuse from my mother and someone I had been married to and um, my brother. So through living through all of that, even getting hit in the head repeatedly with a volleyball, a soccer ball, baseball, what that's doing is slowly damaging the brain matter, even if nothing, the brain tissue, even if nothing shows up on an MRI until like mine, many years later, when my face hit the sidewalk, then it showed up. All of those bruises will, you know, came to the surface. And um, I used to walk three miles a day. I'm doing good to walk one mile throughout the day. And I'm just now two years out building up to walking one mile a day once a week. And my doctor wants me to build it up to two days a week, which I'm going to start next week doing. And I mean, it was like, you hear how frustrated stroke patients are when they can't talk, they can't make sentences. Well, that was me. That was, was really me. I, um, had a hard time finding words. I, my reading level went down to a second grade reading level. I couldn't talk fluently. People say, but you sound fine. But my speech was a lot slower. And they said, you're exaggerating. That's not how you sounded. I go, oh, yes, it was. They go, there, that was more like it. I said, that is different than my being able to talk like I am now. 
um, I went and had to, I went online to Pink's Concussion Group on Facebook and they were telling, I said, what do I do? We're looking at 2020. Everything is shut down. Yeah, I was doing the math in my head and I'm thinking that's not a good time to be getting ill. No, February 10th, 2020, bam. So um, I went ahead and I started having, I have to use a walker. My balance is getting better. My memory is getting better. If you ask me what I forgot, I'll tell you, I don't know. Um, (laughs) And I don't, you don't know what you forget until you start having memory coming back. Or it's like, I, I can't read a book. And I used to avidly read books, holding them in my hand. I miss that. But if I read a book, I can only read like one and a half pages. But don't ask, and before my, it's too much for my brain, but don't ask me what I read. I can read five pages and still not remember what I read at all. I was watching movies, but all I could tell you was if I liked it or didn't like it, oh, I found it entertaining, but I couldn't recall anything about the movie. So I started listening to audiobooks. They said for me to start listening, doctors at second grade reading level. I didn't. I was start, I was bored. Third grade, I was bored. I thought, you know, if I'm going to build up to an adult reading level, I would check digital audiobooks out of the library online. And I could only listen to them at first one minute, then five minutes. And I'm up to, on a good day, I can do an hour. On a a really good day, I can do an hour. On a normal day, I can do 45 minutes as long as I haven't overstimulated my brain. And we don't realize how much stimulation our brain gets. The wind stimulates. If it's too hot, the temperature is too cold. That overstimulates the brain. Um, if you're on the phone too much, that overstimulates or conversations. I would have to limit my conversations to 10, 15 minutes in the beginning. And I was someone who could listen to conversations. And now if I go over an hour, my I can feel it's like my brain is starting to slip sideways inside my skull is what it feels like. So it is a lot different. Um, I take public transportation. But through all of this, my people said, your personality has gotten to be better. You know, <laughs> but I would just be extremely patient six months out before I tell someone, stop it. And now it's like, if I have to tell you more than three times, watch out. If I even have to tell you the third time, watch out because I will tell you. You know, I've already told you a couple of times. Now, if I have to tell you one more time, you're not going to like what comes out of my mouth. (laughs) So I don't put up with a lot of things. But I'm told I have found that I have more compassion for people. And I now understand and can relate to people of all different types who have had head injuries, what they're going through. And there are times where, you know, we have to sit in a dark room with no sound, no light, and just lay there, no phone, no nothing, so our brain can go ahead and calm down. And sometimes I have to do that for up to three hours at consecutive just to be able to function if my brain's been overstimulated. Because people with traumatic brain injuries, we don't have the resilience that someone without a brain injury has. So before I could write on my book, I could crochet for hours at a time. You know, I could do that. I could watch, binge watch movies, which today I haven't watched a movie because I wanted to be able to do this interview. I didn't watch a movie yesterday for, uh, for whatever reason. But I don't get to watch a movie every day. And there are some days to where it's like I'm bored. I need some type of stimulation. So I listen to audiobooks and I'm able, then my brain gets too overstimulated because it feels like my head has a lot of pressure. I turn it off and I rest for a while. And when my brain gets too tired, I go to sleep. But if I exhaust my brain, I will go down and out without, with hardly any notice wherever I am, against a wall, hit the floor, hit my head. And then I have to deal with that all over again. 
So that's what life is like with traumatic brain injury. Which is incredible. And first and foremost, thank you for a being flexible and under, I mean, understanding of what I needed from you. And I knew that we were going to have some challenges tonight. So we kind of worked together to make sure we were together on this. And uh, I'm glad we did. Um, Thank you. I appreciate that because I let the interviewers know ahead of time. I have a brain injury. And Jim would ask me a question before my head injury. I could have answered it. And now my brain process is slower than it did before. Um, So I had to really think about it and then my brain kick in. Or I would have had to have called a girlfriend or sent you an email and asked, could you please explain this in a different way for me, please? So, okay, so, but you you wrote the true crime book. How did this all come out of all this? It was crime fiction. It's not a true crime. It's a crime fiction cold case. Okay, so but I mean, I'm I'm sitting here listening to you only being able to absorb short bits of stuff. I'm trying to figure out how you were able to output even. Um, I had um, with my supernatural gift, which was dormant during 2020, because my brain because it takes a lot of energy to be able to do that kind of work. Um, it wasn't until a year and a half later that I, and I mean, I didn't even think about even wanting to do that. And when I tried, there was like lights on, but no answer. And there was no re- nothing there. So my brain had to build those new neural pathways, which automatically happens when head injury occurs. But I was directed to go on one of the social media platforms and there on um, the my uh, right on what I saw when I got on there was a cold case. And that's when I started having visions. And I did not write about this case because it's still open. But I knew things about the case. I called the police. They called me back. This was in another state, not where I live. And then when I needed to write a book, I thought, you know, a cold case would be really good because investigation, it would take time you know, to investigate and what would what would take place during when it happens so i listened to some podcasts on cold cases and you know and came up with the cold case in my book pattern after you know an interview that i had heard and put the information in and i would work on it for two hours and that really hurt my head so then i worked on it for an hour and i didn't realize i was still exhausting my brain until i went down and out and then I had to cut back on writing the book, which only took four and a half months to do, which is still a feat in itself. And so I'm that's still, how I'm I still working it. on a book, and it's ten and a half years in, and I don't know if I have anything to even show for anybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes life takes over, but that's what got me into um, writing about the cold case, and and I um, and working on the cold case with the police. And just so you know, from what I had, I knew stuff about the case, which was never revealed to the public. And um, I worked with the police on it, and the cadaver dogs confirmed what I had said to the police about this case. So my case is, you know, my gift is authentic. You know, I'm not saying I'm 100% accurate. I don't know. I've had people tell me I'm spot on. I, I don't know. Well, again, I, I'm just imagining, now here I am again, being this guy, but you call the police department and you tell them things that weren't public knowledge. Aren't you mm-hmm. kind of sticking in it at that point? Kind of like going back to when you told the wife about her husband? Like, um, well, um, I was asked, do you have any dealings with, you know, this part, this and this, the area of where it was? And I said, no. Have you ever been here? Yeah, years ago. But then they explained, then I explained to them what I saw and the police officer spoke to his chief. His chief said, go ahead, work with her, you know, and I was, but I was believed. Now, on the other hand, when I called 
the local, I, I called a tribal police department that I want to work with them on the cold cases. They shine me off. They don't return my calls. They tell the girl, take a message, and they don't return my calls at all. So, you know, it's, it's you know, wherever the avenue is, I want to help people. I, I believe that the people who have been killed, whose bodies are somewhere, they need to be returned to their family. So the family can have closure. They can have their funeral service. They can have their loved one back. Now, if it takes 40 to 50 years for bone to completely decompose and turn to dust. So there will be some people who won't be able to return home. And that is unfortunate because there are serial killers and killers out there who like the power of holding it over the family that I don't have. Even though I've said, yes, I killed this and their evidence proving that I killed the person, I don't have to give I don't have to disclose their whereabouts, which I think is quite wrong. But that's my opinion. I get it. So where can people find your books before I forget? Because uh... On Amazon.com. You can look up Gloria Hass, H-A-S is in smile, S is in smile, and my books will come up. And my recent cold case crime fiction book is the murder, or the Dick Jorgensen murder. And uh, I know I found you on Twitter. I'm sure that's where I found you because that's where I find everybody. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, it's on Twitter. My name is Gloria Hass, all one word. On Instagram, it's Gloria Dot Hass. Yeah, that's my guilty pleasure. I, I I can admit it though. I don't know why. I don't know why I admit it, but I do. So, but uh, but I, I appreciate you tonight and um, working through all this and. I, I just sit here and think about the 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 brain injury and overcoming all that to be to this point and it's getting it seems like it's getting better every day, maybe marginally, but still you're headed the right direction, so that's great news. Yes. Thank you. And I still don't know if I remember how to drive and that's okay. Well, one day at a time though, right? And you probably you probably you probably drive better than Half the people in New York, anyways. Just, <laughs> Not, well, actually, I would drive like the people in New York probably right now. <laughs> and uh, Chris, the guy who writes my show notes, which is kind of funny because we're talking to a writer, he says there's some Tucson love here for you. So um, there's that from Arizona to Arizona. So. Oh, and I'm in Tucson, so sending back Tucson love. <laughs> well, there you go. See, it's a, it's a small world, kind of. Of course, he moved to California. We're not going to talk about that, though. Yeah. Fakes, he's rich and famous. He's going to hate me for that, which is good. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> what a great way to end this with, with the middle finger coming up from across the country. Uh, but it wasn't from my guests, so uh, that's good. Uh, Gloria, thank you so much. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate it. Have a good evening. Thank you. <laughs> and, uh, Please go over, uh, since he told me not to do it, but I'll do it for him since we've only got about a minute left. Uh, Chris has got his new project out of his band, and uh, I've listened to some of it. It's good music. It's just not necessarily my type of music, so go check it out. Uh, follow him on Instagram. Follow me on Instagram, and I'll get you all connected with his band and all the good stuff he's doing. Uh, the music is out there on, um, I'm going to say Spotify. I don't know. Is it Apple Music? I know it's Apple Podcast. No, I don't know what it is. It's still iTunes. I don't have a clue. I have an I, I have an iPhone right here, and I don't know what the music platform is. So, who knows? Uh, Steve Jobs hates me. Of course, he's dead, so that's probably good. Um, yeah, there's all that. <laughs> it's on everything, he says. Except for the things that I know. Uh, <laughs> go check it out. Seriously. He'll put a link in the uh, show notes for this, too. Why? Because I told him to right now, even though he just gave me the big the big bird. Uh, I hope everybody has a good week, and um, we'll be back next week, and we'll talk something else. That's what we do around here. Have a good night. It's the Mallard Report. Yeah, the Mallard Report. Hey, I want to thank you for joining us. It's been a good show tonight. I hope you enjoyed it. Take a few moments, subscribe, share, all the fun stuff. You know how to do it. I don't have to tell you. Just uh, be ready for next week. 
I'll be sooner than you think. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.